from WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is away this week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. By Friday, the headlines were filled with stories of the U.S. missile strike on Syria. Frankly, it's too early for us to address that media narrative or dissect the information flow. So we begin with this week's prevailing political story, the annihilation of what has been depicted by Democrats as a hallowed tradition the Senate filibuster, which as of Thursday, could no longer be used to derail a Supreme Court nominee. This is a Fox News alert. The Senate has voted to go nuclear, meaning the so-called nuclear option. That's the decision after Democrats blocked a full Senate vote on Judge Neil Gorsuch's nomination to the Supreme Court. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell making a historic change to the Senate rules to clear the path forward for President Trump's Supreme Court nominee. Which means that any party from now on can nominate a Supreme Court justice with a simple majority. Since the Republicans lacked the 60 votes needed to end the Democratic filibuster, they voted instead to change the threshold. Presto, cloture achieved, filibuster folded, and only 51 votes required to usher nominee Neil Gorsuch onto the high court. It's called the nuclear option because the Republicans didn't really change the rule, as has been reported. They changed the interpretation of the rule, a rather more devious maneuver, but one the Republicans had enough votes to pull off. The Democrats did much the same a few years back to block filibusters on lower court nominees. This time, it was Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell who pushed the so-called nuclear button. We need to restore the norms and traditions of the Senate and get past this unprecedented partisan filibuster. Unprecedented? Non-traditional? Abnormal? Surely not. The founding fathers hoped that there would be compromises there. That's why 60 votes were needed to pass anything. Something that has made the Senate different from the House back since the founding fathers. Framers of our Constitution had the wisdom to create a Senate with a strong minority to serve as a check on runaway power. And Alexander Hamilton would be rolling over in his grave. Sarah Binder, author of Stalemate, Causes and Consequences of Legislative Gridlock, says that much of what's been said about the fabled filibuster is, in fact, a fable. So this is the key myth about the filibuster, that it was part of the framers design for the upper chamber. There's no evidence for that. In fact, back in 1789, the very first year, both chambers basically adopted a similar set of rules. The key rule, we use it in the House today to cut off debate by majority vote so that there can't be filibusters. That rule has a kind of funky name, the previous question motion. <laughs> the House and the Senate they both had this rule that allowed majorities to cut off debate, but they didn't use it very consistently. Mm -hmm. Where does this go? It's 1804. Aaron Burr kills Alexander Hamilton, but he's still the vice president. <laughs> Runs out of town. Back 1805, he's in the chamber. He's still dispensing advice in the Senate. And Burr says, you're a great deliberative body, but a really great chamber has a very clean rule book and yours is a mess. And he singles out that previous question motion. They get rid of it in 1806, not because they wanted to create filibusters, right? Not because they saw the great deliberative body of the Senate and they needed a right way to protect the rights of minorities. That rule was gone because Aaron Burr told them to get rid of it and it hadn't been used yet. So I think it's fair to point out that parties themselves were not as important in Aaron Burr's time as they later came to be. Absolutely, right? They had factions, 
Hamilton versus Jefferson, and those became the basis of political parties, but it takes a while. And once partisanship heats up and once the big issues of the day become really, really tough and important, such as slavery, well, the minority decides in the Senate, we're just going to talk all night. So that's that's where our notions of filibusters come from. It's certainly part of the traditions of the Senate. It's just not original to the Senate. Pundits talk about the ennobling power of the filibuster. You say that they were trying to get rid of it all along. For sure. It was a slower Senate. More could participate. But even the great senators of the day, the Henry Clays of the world, the Daniel Websters, Nelson Aldridge later in the end of the 19th century, each of them tried to create a rule that would today we call cloture. But every time they tried, the minority filibustered the motion to ban the filibuster. So it's certainly the case that these great leaders running the majority, uh, they wanted to achieve things in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And so they should have been frustrated by the minority. And there may have been times when the minority had a good effect. It might have stopped some bad stuff from happening. It also stopped good stuff from happening. And that's really the origins of why we got cloture in 1917. Almost exactly 100 years ago. We just missed the anniversary in March. I know. How did you celebrate? Uh, I didn't discover it till March 28th. I missed it by three weeks, and I was really bummed. <laughs> I have to say, if anyone would throw a centennial birthday party for the cloture rule, it would have been me. But how do we get it to begin with, and why? Merchant ships were being shot at by the Germans in the run-up to World War One. Woodrow Wilson, the president, after seeing particular bills he saw as war measures, filibustered several years in a row. It was Wilson who really had the stroke of genius to fuse filibuster reform with security, to say that our country's security going into war depended on finding a way to limit filibusters. And so he went around the country. He gave speeches. They burnt in effigy the senators who were blocking the Senate. And he succeeded. There is obviously another concern that if you only need 51 votes, you're going to have far more partisan appointments to the courts. McCain referred to this. What do you think the next nominee is going to be like? And then what do you think is going to happen when eventually the, the Democrats are in the majority in the Senate? And that's going to happen sooner or later. Even though we've not had outright floor filibusters recently, presidents knew that there could be a filibuster. Even as recently as Bush, for sure, and also Obama, right? Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, they weren't getting in the 90s of votes, but they got into the 60s. And that meant that the president was reaching out and finding nominees who were not for Democrats on the far left, but had some claim to being in the center so that the other party would at least help vote for them. But we surely could have said that about Merrick Garland as well. Well, yeah, uh, that is, I think, what sticks most in the craw of Democrats today. But I think we'll have to see what difference the filibuster change here has going forward. But certainly, we should expect more polarized nominees. By the way, where did the word filibuster come from? We believe the Dutch used a word called freebooter, who were basically people who jumped on ships and stole the stuff. Mm -hmm. There was a word in Spanish, filibustero, and it was applied to people who basically marauded over Mexico in the 19th century. Uh, it seemed to have come to the Senate sometime in the 19th century. <laughs> Here, however, 
it seems to have dropped those piratical, felonious connotations. Maybe it was uh, Mr. Smith going to Washington who did that. Bleary-eyed, voice gone. He can't go on much longer. And all official Washington is here to be in on the kill. Just get up off the ground. That's all I ask. Get up there with that lady that's up on top of this Capitol Dome. That lady that stands for liberty. He was sort of the, the noble defender against the bad guys. But more often when we think about filibusters historically, we're really thinking about civil rights filibusters blocking a Senate from going forward on voting rights, civil rights, and so forth. So, yeah, it has a story, sometimes negative, sometimes positive. This week, Senator Mitch McConnell said of the Democrats, Americans will be watching, history will be watching, and the future of the Senate will hang on their choice. Will it? Well, let's give the leader his due. It is momentous. I don't think Democrats want to see this happen. And future Republicans, when they're in the minority, they'll be bummed it happened. (laughs) However, I see today's change as part of a longer parliamentary arms race between these two political parties that's been going on at least since the 1980s. So this is not the high watermark of partisanship for the Senate by any means. That day, I think, may yet come if a future majority decides they want to go nuclear to ban filibusters of legislation. But this is just one more step up to empower majorities to rule. Just another link in the chain. For sure. Would you be more exercised if they did use the nuclear option against filibustering legislation? My view as a political scientist is that legislatures should take votes. And deep down, ultimately, filibusters are about blocking votes. And so if a future Senate majority decides we're going to do away with the filibuster altogether, I think that could be a good development for the Senate. To be honest, having the filibuster allows the majority to blame the minority when votes don't happen. Uh, And I think as voters, maybe we'd like to hold majorities accountable for the things they want to pursue rather than allowing them to dodge behind filibusters. You don't think that a 49-member minority should have a chance to influence legislation? Yes. Ultimately, doing away with the filibuster would limit the rights of the minority for sure, and it would empower majorities. But those majorities would be held accountable if voters are paying attention at election time. Perhaps majorities would be slightly more cautious going forward. Sarah, thank you very much. Sure. Thanks very much for having me. Sarah Binder is a professor of political science at George Washington University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's the author of Stalemate, Causes and Consequences of Legislative Gridlock. Coming up, the IRS could make filing your taxes so much easier if it weren't blocked by H&R Block. This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And as if things couldn't get much worse, it's tax time. Thank goodness there are companies like H&R Block who can at least help us shoulder that burden, right? Your life is busy, growing. We might say it has layers. That means tax complexity. We get it, and we're on it. (laughs) They do get how complex the tax system is because their business model is based on it staying that way. That's ProPublica reporting fellow Jessica Hoosman. She says that what's left out of the cheery marketing is the fact that when tax prep companies are not helping you through our overwhelming tax system, firms like Intuit, which makes TurboTax, spend heaps of cash to ensure that it stays somewhat overwhelming. Last year, Intuit spent almost $2.5 million lobbying. H&R Block spent more than $3 million, and they're also spending money giving direct donations. So what is it like doing taxes right now? I'll just tell you how I do my taxes, Mm -hmm. and maybe that will be representative because (laughs) I don't think that I'm very good at it. So I keep all of my documents in a pink shoebox, and I stuff them in there all year long. A couple of weeks before April 15th, I sign up for one of these paid tax services, and I meticulously go through all of my returns from the company that I work for, from any freelance work that I might have done. And I take all of the receipts that I've also saved. I spread them all out over the floor and I add those up and I try to figure out which box I should type these numbers into. And it takes hours. And in the entire time, I have this sick feeling in my stomach that I've lost a return or maybe I'm being too generous with how much I've spent on my business all year long. And then I hit send and hope for the best. It could be so much easier than that. How could it be better? Well, you know, think about all the things the IRS already knows about you. Your bank is already giving them information as to how much money you have and where that money is coming from. Your employer is also giving them information as to how much they are paying you. So in a lot of European countries, tax authorities use that information that they already have and send you a slip saying, this is how much we think that you owe. And you can either say, yes, that's correct, sign it off, send a check back with it, or you can use your own tax preparation service to do your taxes yourself. So if they say, you owe us $3,000, and you say, uh, wait a minute, I have spent more on my business beyond the standard deduction, so you can just add that additional information to their pre-filled out return. Right. The only thing that this return-free system would do would be the IRS telling you everything it already knows about you and making a best estimate as to how much it thinks that you owe. So it would be great if I knew what the IRS knew about me. There's a lot of power in that. And a lot of people might in fact, be able to take advantage of such a system, (laughs) right? If the IRS isn't aware of some income that you might have, maybe you just don't say anything, right? Not that you're advocating. Not that I'm advocating this. Everybody (laughs) should file their taxes. 
So if it's so simple for most of us, why do we turn to companies like H&R Block? Because the federal government is presently barred from offering its own system like that. They have signed a contract with the Free File Alliance. The Free File Alliance is a group of 13 private for-profit tax preparation companies to provide the majority of Americans with a free system of doing their taxes. Free filing is supposed to be available to 70% of the tax-paying public. So in exchange for these companies offering a free product, the government says, all right, we will not offer a free product ourselves. The problem is that nobody knows that this system exists because the IRS's budget for marketing this system is $0, and the tax preparation companies have no incentive for you to use their free products instead of their paid-for products. So last year, less than 2% of the people who paid taxes did so through the free file system, even though it's supposed to be available to 70% of the tax-paying public. Intuit has been quite frank in its quarterly statements by saying, we don't want this pre-fill system because it'll hurt our bottom line. Uh, That's not in their commercials. No, it's not in their commercials. And they, in fact, are for things that would make the existing system easier for you, less boxes for you to fill out. And so they do lobby for bills that would simplify the tax system in that way. But the ultimate way that they could make the tax system easy is if the government were to offer a system of return-free filing, which they are inherently opposed to. There have been bills on both sides of this issue. Where do they stand now, and and what do you think is likely to happen? So last year, in April, there were two bills that were proposed within days of each other. One in the Senate, some Democrats sponsored a bill that would have created the system of return-free filing to simplify your taxes. In the House, a bipartisan bill would make permanent the system of free file alliance. Both of those bills died in committee. The free file alliance agreement expires in 2020. And so before then, we would either have to renew that agreement, make it permanent, or replace it entirely with this system of return free filing. You've mentioned that uh, anti-tax libertarians like Grover Norquist side with the tax prep companies. It would seem to me that simplifying filling out your taxes would be at least theoretically more up his alley. Right. You know, when folks like Grover Norquist talk about this system, their talking point and the talking point that the Free File Alliance uses is that it is an inherent conflict of interest for the person you are paying your taxes to, to also tell you how much you owe, and that it wouldn't be in the IRS's interest to offer up all of the deductions that you might qualify for. They might exaggerate how much you owe. I think part of the problem is that most people think you can't fight the IRS. Right. But there are a couple of problems with that argument. First and most obviously, they leave out the fact that it is an entirely voluntary system. You get to tell them if you disagree with that number. And then also, I think something that gets left out of this conversation is that there are hundreds of thousands of people every year that don't file their taxes at all and thus don't qualify to get a return. And so the IRS has hundreds of millions of dollars that are unclaimed from people who didn't file their taxes and thus paid too much. And they could get money back, but they just never filed their taxes to begin with. When you hear ads from tax prep companies like the one we played at the top of the interview, Can you imagine sort of an alternate text that would be closer to the truth? 
it would be great if their commercial said something like, we're for making your taxes easier as long as we have to do them for you. (laughs) It kind of boggles the mind. Like what they're actually advocating is that they want to make their software simpler to use, right? They want you to be less annoyed when you're using their software. But what they don't want to happen is a system that's so simple that you don't need their tax software at all. So they want to simplify it, but not too much. Your taxes could take minutes to do instead of days or hours, and they want to keep it at hours instead of minutes. Thank you so much, Jessica. Yeah, no problem. Jessica Hoosman is a reporting fellow at ProPublica. You're busy. Friends, family, kids. No wonder you don't have time to do your taxes. That's why we at EasyTax are committed to making your filing experience easier. Not very much easier, just a little bit easier. Like, still bad, but maybe 10% less bad. Imagine if the government just told you how much they thought you owed as a starting point. Imagine if the government even told you if they owed you money, without you even having to file. Or, better still, imagine the exact same system we already have, but with a new app so you can take your stress anywhere. At EasyTax, we offer the best service possible, while also ensuring that you remain entirely dependent upon us and our product. Is it the best system? Of course not. But it could be worse. You could be dead. EasyTax. Making your life slightly better. Within limits. Tim Hugo is a Virginia State legislator and executive director of the Free File Alliance. Welcome. Thank you for having me today. The Free File Alliance is a public-private partnership whereby tax prep companies offer a free filing system for low- and middle-income Americans in exchange for a promise that the government will not provide such a service itself, right? Right. Anybody making under $64,000 a year adjusted gross income can go to irs.gov and get a free federal tax return. We've done over 50 million free returns for Americans. That's about $1.6 billion worth of free product that we've saved taxpayers money. We also save the IRS money too. They don't have to do the servers. They don't have to provide helplines. Now, in theory, 70% of Americans are eligible to use the free service, though only about 2% used the free service last year. How do you account for that? Well, 10 years ago, the IRS had about $20 million for advertising budget. This year, it's zero. I'm hoping a lot of people listen to your program. Go to irs.gov forward slash free file and get a free federal return. I just wish more people knew about it. Why don't the tax companies advertise that free service themselves? So the prep companies that are now benefiting from the current cumbersome process actually have the opportunity to live up to their part of the bargain? Well, I don't think it's cumbersome. It's pretty easy. The reason why these companies exist is because it is hard now to fill out one's taxes. Why don't the tax companies advertise this free service themselves? I mean, invest a little money in it. No, why doesn't the IRS? That's what I keep saying. They did $20 million a decade ago when I first started doing this. It's literally gone down to zero. So I think we need to talk to some of our friends in Washington, D.C. to get the IRS a little more money for advertising. 
make people aware. Maybe Congress ought to allot that money, but Congress isn't going to because it isn't in the interest of the many lobbyists who spend millions of dollars on this issue. So I ask again, why don't companies invest a little money in advertising this so that you can get that usage number above 2%? We do ads all over the country. You do spend money on ads for this process. We do. We do. We do some We do uh, some Facebook ads. I do interviews. I set up interviews all over the country, Mm -hmm. literally. And we send out press releases, Twitter. How much money much for pride here, but January 15th, uh, we send things all, out all day. How is this a better alternative than having the government provide people with what it knows, cutting out the middleman? Well, one, it is free, so I don't see why a free service to the government is a bad thing. Actually, it's a good thing. Two, I would be a little concerned if I was the American taxpayer having the IRS being the tax preparer and the tax collector. That's like having the fox guarding the hen house. I think you've got to be very wary about that because who's going to find every one of your deductions? Who's going to find every one of your exemptions? Is the IRS going to do it? And that's what these companies, that's what they do. So you're suggesting there's a a conflict of interest here, but that would be true if this process weren't transparent and voluntary. What the government simply does is reveal what it knows. It does that heavy lifting up front. You wouldn't be... Why would you want the government to pay for something they already get for free? Because they aren't getting it for free. People aren't using it. Why would you ask the IRS to spend hundreds of millions of dollars hiring employees, computers and stuff, to do what we do for free? The IRS knows what it knows. H&R Block doesn't know what the IRS knows. Also, everyone would receive these pre-filled returns, including the millions of Americans who are due tax refunds but don't get them because they don't file. I think in 2012, the IRS said more than a million Americans didn't receive their refunds amounting to something like $950 million because they didn't file. Now they will get the chance to actually get refunds. What you're suggesting is that what we give the IRS for free, they should pay for. I just don't think that's that's a good proposition for the taxpayer. I don't think it's a good proposition for the IRS. The tax prep companies like to talk about the conflict of interest. It is a conflict of interest. Fox starting the hen house. But Intuit, which produces TurboTax, every quarterly report includes the line, our consumer tax business faces significant competition from the public sector let me, at let me no cost to taxpayers, which may cause us to lose customers and revenue. Let me throw a proposition out to you. You see more and more states that had their government-run program now moving back to the free-file model, including New York State, including Massachusetts. They had their own government-run program, and you know what? They figured out it didn't work. They said, you guys, you're giving it to us for free. Why don't we do it? How does this address the issue that I'm raising? What about the fact that Intuit... That's that's a question right there. Why are these states... I'll ask you that question once you answer mine, okay? Why are these states moving back? And it's because they see the value proposition in getting the product for free, and all the work is offloaded onto somebody else. And relatively speaking... Only a tiny fraction of the people who could use it do use it. And it strikes me that given that Intuit has said that it fears competition from federal and state taxing authorities is what is behind the big push here. I mean, obviously, right? 
I just think I'm just excited. More people are going to listen to your program. I think a lot of people are going to use free file this year. The last mm-hmm. two weeks, the filing season. So I'm excited about that. Okay. Thank you very much for pulling off the road and talking to me. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I hope everybody goes to irs.gov forward slash free file. Bye-bye, Tim. Thanks. Bye-bye. Tim Hugo is a Virginia State Legislator and Executive Director of the Free File Alliance. Coming up, what do we call the epoch we live in? I mean, Holocene is so 5,000 years ago. This is On the Media. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Last week, the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology held a hearing titled Climate Change, Assumptions, Policy Implications, and the Scientific Method, during which scientists and Congress folk debated the question of whether climate change exists. Can you explain why some would say that with such certainty that extreme weather events will increase given the fact that they have not? Every time you call it climate change, you are admitting that, yes, there was a pause, a major pause in temperature increase, because before that, it was global warming. So if the scientists of that day believed that there was a possibility of a coming ice age, and then all of a sudden it changes, is that, it seems like some of the data is being left out. While this scientifically illiterate conversation was taking place in Congress, more fruitful discussion has been taking place elsewhere, really almost anywhere else. Consider the Anthropocene Working Group, which argues that given the profound evidence of human impact on the planet, it's time to officially establish an entirely different geological era. We're now technically in the Holocene, an estimated 11,700-year-old period characterized by stability, but with rapidly accelerating changes altering the nature of life on Earth, the working group suggests that we've left the Holocene and entered something new, an epoch in which conditions are markedly more unstable. Last fall, the group recommended to the International Commission on Stratigraphy a proposed start date for the Anthropocene, the age of humans. It's still building its case, and it may take years for the committee to approve a change to the geological timescale because, after all, geologists are not used to evaluating the present. I mean, let's face it, they live in the past, where things usually happen very slowly, though sometimes they happen really, really fast. The classic example of the really rapid change, of course, is the meteorite impact that likely killed off the dinosaurs and that ushered in the Cenozoic era after the Mesozoic era. Probably the only example I know of a real, you know, a very bad Friday afternoon and the world changed. Jan Zaloshevich is a stratigrapher. He studies the strata, or layers of rock, which reveal the Earth's roughly five-billion-year history. He's also chair of the Anthropocene Working Group. Usually, things happen in a slower and more complicated fashion. The strata, therefore, reflect that change. And somewhere 
over that interval of change, we have to find a marker. We say, we fix the boundary here. And we fix it not because it's the most important of the changes, but because it's the best marker to give us what we call a synchronous level, the level that can be most easily traced across the world to form a time plane. So when, in your view, does the Anthropocene start? It's really the surface atomic bomb tests of the early 1950s. And they sprinkled the world with plutonium, cesium, americium, and so on. That level that we can follow in in ice, and we can follow it in lake muds, and we can follow it on the bottom of the sea, more or less coincides with these very big Earth system changes of the big changes to the carbon cycle, to the nitrogen cycle. The biosphere really started changing them. A lot of the physical changes as well, the production of huge amounts of concrete, also plastics, aluminium, you know, Mm -hmm. all of which are getting into strata. You wrote a book, The Earth After Us, musing over how to read the layers of rocks a hundred million years from now that we're producing. So what would aliens learn from our culture a hundred million years from now, assuming we were extinct? Let's say we've been gone for, let's say, 99 million years, so there'd be no surface trace of us. Probably they would not hit a fossilized city first, but they would find what was once a delta or a coastal plain or something. And then I think at that stage, more likely than not, they will hit upon the remains of towns, cities, big, solid, chunky things made of rock that we've built. And then the fun will really start for them. So uh, subway systems might be fossilizable. Yes, yes, you'd imagine they would be compressed, crumpled, but nonetheless, there's a whole lot of concrete and brick and wiring and and things that will be completely unlike anything in the geology before or probably after. And what about landfills? Would there be meters and meters of thick, fossilized garbage? That will be fascinating because currently a landfill site may be 70 meters thick or something like that. Mm. You might imagine it being highly squashed. But nonetheless, within that, there will be all kinds of things just packed together. Old armchairs and chicken bones and newspaper, bits of plastic, CDs, TV sets that have been thrown out. Most of these things are robust, hard, fossilizable in some manner. Chicken? It is something we're currently working on, you know, the Anthropocene chicken, as it were, because it is now the world's commonest bird. It is different from its wild ancestors. It's spread all around the world. And the bones tend to end up in landfill sites, whereas the bones of wild starlings and sparrows and pigeons, they will be at the surface of the ground and will be scavenged. Mm -hmm. Most of those will not survive. Chicken bones and shoulders of lamb and beef off the bone and that kind of thing, that will also form part of the signature of this rather strange biosphere. Now, you mentioned aluminum. Our landfills are full of soda cans. Yes, and that's an interesting one. The metal aluminum by itself is incredibly rare in nature. We've made something like... 500 million tons of it, enough to cover either Europe or North America, much of it, with a layer of of standard kitchen aluminium foil. The amount of plastic is something of the order of four to five billion tons, which is enough to wrap the whole earth in a layer of plastic wrap. Hmm. Preserving it. Preserving it, indeed, yes. (laughs) The soda can, as you said. When it's buried, because it's hard, it will likely leave an impression. But aluminium underground may slowly dissolve away like many fossil shells dissolve away, so you'll be left with the impression. 
of the aluminium can. And you can imagine future paleontologists cracking their heads over this. (laughs) (laughs) Just on Earth, what was that? (laughs) You must have been excited by the big rock layer news recently. Man-made minerals identified. And yet, minerals, by definition, aren't man-made. Yes. Again, you know, geological bureaucracy collides with <laughs> the real meaning of things. I think the big news is the scale of it. So, you know, over the last few centuries, and particularly over the last few decades, we have much, much more than doubled the number of minerals. An explosion of mineral formation has taken place, which is part of the description of the Anthropocene. And isn't it true that the last mineral created was two and a half billion years ago when oxygen arrived? And then it's been pretty well a plateau, around and about somewhere between four and 5,000 minerals. And suddenly humans come along and there are now more than 150,000 different types of synthetic mineral-like substances. Our material scientists will take, let's say, tungsten and carbon to make tungsten carbide, which again is terribly rare in nature, but it makes the ball of most of our ballpoint pens. A hundred million years in the future, what will we be able to tell about the animal extinctions that we're seeing now? The animal extinctions and also the species invasions that we've, you know, encouraged or allowed. Or... That means we moved some really nice plants from uh, Tibet to uh, Long Island or something like that. That's right. And so they take off like crazy and, you know, push out some of the the native plants. And that is one of the big signatures. So we're really changing the course of Earth's biological history. And it's these changes that give you the big long-term signals in the strata that something happened. So the meteor, 65 million years ago, reset the Earth's biology. Currently, we are the meteor. There will be winners and losers. There'll be more losers than winners, but the winners will be the ones who will go on to provide future generations. And among the winners, you think, are rats and cats. (laughs) More than likely. That happened um, when the dinosaurs died out. Mammals had been around a long time, but small, squeaky, furry things. When the dinosaurs disappeared, the mammals simply flowered into this variety of very large creatures, into the, the mammoths, the elephants, the blue whales... Do you envision the rats evolving to fill in some of the spaces left by the mass extinction? In brief, yes. Yes, they will evolve and there will be different forms of future rats. Some big, some small, some fat, some thin, depending on the ecological niche. Super smart ones? They may be super smart ones as well. They're pretty smart at the moment. Like a Planet of the Apes scenario, they're, they're walking around and we say, Damn you all to hell! Yes, that's one possibility. Now, my cat might dispute that. But yes, if we do reduce the biosphere to a simpler state, then left to itself, it will then become complex again. And we're not talking about nuclear war-type extinction. We're just talking about the kind of extinction we're doing now. Yes, yes, we cut down forests all over the Earth, and, and, and so there is no place for those creatures to live any longer. The kind of creatures that can live are the creatures that can live now pretty close to us. So the rats are, of course, a prime example of that. Why does it matter to you so much, Jan, that Anthropocene is designated as an official period of time? I think it matters more to me that we understand what the Anthropocene is and what it's doing. The formalization case is something that we think will help, because in science we use words to describe 
clear, distinct phenomena. And the Anthropocene is clearly a distinct phenomenon, different from the Holocene and previous interglacials. So, by and large, we think it'll be useful. So, it doesn't matter if it's called the the Plasticine or the Technocene or, or anything like that. You just want people to know that there's a big change going on. That history and geological process and, and therefore, you know, a lot of the things that we think of as environmental change is really taking place at a bigger scale and rather faster than it was, let's say, when our distant ancestors lived, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago. One last question. In your book, you wrote, we are briefly in the golden age of our power, our dominance, but we are destined to extinction also. The world will then go on as before. Once a geological age or two has passed, there'll be nothing but the odd bone or gold ring to say that we were ever here. Now, you're taking the really, really long view. Is that comforting? Or are you panicking like so many others? Oh, oh, geologists always panic at the drop of a hat, you know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But in this case, yes, that sentence, if you like, one alternative of a number of possible future scenarios, you know, I drew in the book. Of course, we're the wild card in biology and geology. We cannot predict the future. But what we can say is that the current trajectory we're on doesn't look sustainable. So if one is to try and develop a path that is better for our own children, grandchildren, their children, grandchildren, then it's good to be as aware as possible of both present-day events and how they fit in and compare with past events in Earth history. How long did the dinosaurs last? Of the order of 100 million years. 100 million years. Some form of man has been around how long? anatomically, you know, modern humans, about uh, 180,000 years. And culturally modern humans, that is people who did art and stuff like that in caves, about 50,000 years. Hmm. That's a flea bite in terms of time. Jan, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Jan Zalashevich is the chair of the International Anthropocene Working Group and professor of paleobiology at the University of Leicester. The idea of the Anthropocene may have taken root in the geological community, but it hasn't stayed there. Now released into the world, the concept has made its way into fields as far-flung as political science, fiction, and music. Like musician Nick Cave. The head-bound children Anthropocene, an earlier formulation of the word, was coined by ProPublica reporter and Anthropocene Working Group member Andy Revkin, but it's the same idea. The word's also been applied to literature. Adam Trexler came up with the term Anthropocene fictions to chronicle the way novelists from Margaret Atwood to Ian McEwan have grappled with human-made climate change. And there's books like Art in the Anthropocene, Adventures in the Anthropocene, Politics for the Anthropocene. The new geological era fuels endless speculation about who we might be and how we might live. 
Benjamin Kunkel, a novelist and founder of N Plus One magazine, recently wrote about the Anthropocene for the London Review of Books. The appeal that this concept of the Anthropocene has had outside of technical stratigraphy has to do with trying to understand during this age that really struggles with its attention span to think where we are in geological history and where we are in the evolution of different social forms. So it compels the long view. It compels the long view, which is hard to take these days. And we've seen a lot of competing terms popping up recently. Besides Anthropocene, you've got the Plasticine, related to plastic, the Pyrocene, that there's so much burning going on, even jokily the Misanthropocene. Yes. I've seen it jokily referred to as the Anglocene as well, because there was a period during which uh, the United Kingdom was, of course, responsible for the bulk of carbon emissions during the time where that was really the center of the world economy. So you focus on one term, the capitalocene, right? What's the argument for using it? The capitalocene refers to a geological period or period in natural history that would be defined not just by the generic existence of humanity, which has been the case for 200,000 years, but by the capitalist mode of production, by capitalist societies, a capitalist economy. You prefer it to anthropocene? because you see this problem as being not intrinsic to humanity. The pace and the scope of ecological change over recent centuries is much greater than that prior to recent centuries. Certainly humanity didn't just come about, nor did the use of fire come about. What did come about? Well, the capitalist mode of production. And other people who say that the Anthropocene must have begun with the Industrial Revolution of course, alluding to what was a capitalist industrial revolution. It wasn't just any old industrial revolution. It happened in one particular place. The Anglocene, which we talked about a moment ago, took place in England when it had become capitalist. There have, of course, been English people around for a long time, too. And this is another reason to be wary of speaking of the Anthropocene. The part of humanity that is responsible for the bulk of ecological change is by no means the majority or the totality of humanity. It's people from the richest countries, which are, of course, the richest capitalist countries. But isn't it possible that humanity really is at fault? There's a Dutch professor of psychology named Mark van Woot who says that we're basically wired to destroy our environment because of five reasons. Humans value their personal interests over other interests. We value the present over the future. We are obsessed by status we copy unconsciously the behaviors of others around us, and we disregard novel environmental threats. That's certainly true, but its truth should not be exaggerated. I think that the law of entropy, the fact that we use energy-dense, very useful things, and then they are degraded into waste and trash, this meant that as soon as civilization came into being, it was clear that civilization and society were not really ultimately sustainable. So civilization is the problem, not capitalism. I don't think so. It's hardwired into us that we're going to die. When are we going to die and how badly are we going to die and how disgracefully are we going to die or how honorably are we going to die? That's a very important question. It's probably clear that you're going to have a, a devastated planet at one point. But how quickly do you need to get there? And we're getting there so quickly right now and with so little prospect of a kind of soft landing rather than a very hard landing that I don't think we can talk about these problems in a serious way without talking about capitalism. Huge amounts of pollution are coming out of China. So why indict capitalism when it's just abundant human beings all struggling for 
comfort and a better way of life in the present, precisely that kind of hard wiring that that Dutch professor of psychology delineates. But why should this hard wiring have kicked in two, three, four, five hundred years ago? He would argue it didn't. It's simply that there are so many more of us now and so much more technology. The reason that there are all these people that you refer to has a great deal to do with the Green Revolution, among other factors, that took place certainly in a capitalist context. The revolutionization of agriculture after the Second World War didn't just happen in some void. It happened in a capitalist society. We don't know what a truly egalitarian society would do ecologically because we haven't seen one. Obviously, you favor Capitalocene over Anthropocene because there is a message tucked in there, or perhaps a call to certain kinds of action, whereas Anthropocene simply describes an epoch. I think that there's a danger that the Anthropocene becomes too fatalistic. Recognizing now that our species is really in control of what life as a whole looks like on this planet, I think we want to have an ideal in which not just a few capitalists or not just, you know, the 1% or something is in control of our ecological destination, but people as a whole. And I don't think that socialism necessarily means that you have an ecologically sustainable regime. I just think then you have a chance. And I think we don't really look like we have much of a chance at the moment because my entire adult life, we've recognized these problems. We've got these treaties that have been signed without being ratified, ratified without being upheld in terms of uh, carbon emissions. And so, you know, capitalism has had now the span of a young adult's life to address these problems and has failed to do so. So even though you've seen so much that would make you cynical, you still believe that human beings can rise above their tendency to be short-sighted, status-conscious, and comfort-loving, and all of those things that appear to have been hardwired since the dawn of man. I'm pessimistic, but not despairing. Other universal political projects, whether the French Revolution, which is launched under the banner of the rights of man, or our own revolution, which makes this appeal to the conscience of mankind. These projects take a very long time, and by the time they're accomplished, all kinds of devastation has taken place. But it seems to me that the Anthropocene, as a political project where humanity itself would be in charge and no longer simply capital accumulation, that's a very worthy political project. Benjamin Kunkel is a founder of N Plus One magazine and author of a tragicomic play about global warming called Buzz. The Earth creates and extinguishes life with equal equanimity. Consider the Neanderthals, a very successful line of humans for 300 to 400,000 years. The evidence suggests they arose in Europe in a climate much like ours during a warm phase of the Pleistocene, the Ice Age. But the world got colder and colder. We know that they were intelligent, adaptable, omnivorous, social, and strong. But maybe the cold killed them. Now, that's just a theory, one of many. But it offers a cautionary tale. Because we can't really know, as individuals or as a species, how the Earth will dispose of us, only that it will. But for God's sake, why rush it? Evolution or extinction? The fork in the road. Say what you will about Neanderthals. They never stopped trying to survive. 
On the Media is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, and Micah Lowinger. We had more help from Sarah Kari, Leah Fetter, and Kate Baktiarova. And our show is edited by me. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week is Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Support for On the Media comes from the Overbrook Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.